In Australia, one woman each week is murdered by her current or former male partner. This is the country's other pandemic. One of those women was Alison Baden-Clay, a 43-year-old mother of three from Brisbane. Since Alison's murder in 2012, her family, through the Alison Baden-Clay Foundation, has been working to build a community that acknowledges how severe the issue of domestic and family violence is in Australia. The foundation is also working with Griffith University to help empower people to intervene when they see or suspect something is awry. So why are we talking about this on a JLL podcast? Well, real estate is a predominantly male industry and men can be a huge influence in putting an end to this scourge if they call out behaviour that could be considered domestic violence. Plus, the workplace is an important setting. For victims, the support of colleagues and employers is vital. In this episode of JLL's Beyond Buildings podcast, the sister of Alison Baden-Clay, Vanessa Fowler, joins JLL's Lydia King and Nicole Zipf for a webinar which was held on White Ribbon Day, a global social movement to eliminate gendered violence. This is a recording of the webinar. We hope you get plenty out of it. I'm Rebecca Kent. everyone to today White Ribbon Day. Uh, my name is Lydia King and I lead the national gender focus for JLL. White Ribbon Day is an opportunity to bring people together to openly discuss the commonly taboo topic of family and domestic violence as well as primary prevention strategies. In a commonly male-dominated industry such as ours, the property industry, we hope this webinar not only raises awareness but also empowers men to speak to other men about violence against women as a powerful catalyst for change. In Australia, on average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. One in four women have experienced emotional abuse since the age of 15. One in five women have experienced sexual abuse. And Indigenous women are between two and five times more likely than other Australian women to experience physical abuse at the hands of a current or former partner. Harrowingly, domestic and family violence was an issue in 71% of cases involving the death of a child within the child protection system. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our guest speaker, Vanessa Fowler from the Alison Baden Clay Foundation and our very own Nicole Zips from JLL, Head of HR Australia and New Zealand. Uh, in 2012, Brisbane mother Alison Baden-Clay was murdered by her husband, leaving behind a shattered family and three young daughters. From this tragic murder, the Alison Baden-Clay Foundation was founded. The foundation exists to educate the community about family and domestic violence and empower people to aid in prevention. Leading the foundation, is Alison's sister, Vanessa. Welcome, Vanessa, and thank you for your time today. Uh, I think what struck me the most when I was researching uh, ahead of today uh, on the foundation and on the statistics for family domestic violence was um, the different forms of violence, that it's not just physical. So, um, you know, depletion of self-esteem, control of finances, <clears throat> those sorts of things that were outside what we normally would think of as, as violence. Um, so I'm really looking forward to you sharing your presentation with us today 
uh, a little bit about the foundation and your story. But thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me. We might do Vanessa's presentation. Thank you so much, Lydia, for the invitation and that lovely um, introduction. Um, so today I'm here to discuss the major epidemic that's happening within our country at the moment. And I'm not talking about COVID-19. Uh, I'm talking about the epidemic of violence, behaviours and attitudes towards women in Australia. My message today is not only about my sister, but it's also about each of you as leaders within your own community. Each one of you is a leader. You can make a difference in the lives of those around you by recognising and responding to incidents of violent behaviour. Each one of us is a bystander. However, it's important for us to take the lead and be effective bystanders, equipped with the tools and skills necessary to break the silence of violence within our community. The slide that you're seeing at the moment shows 17 out of 20 cases considered by the Domestic and Family Violence Death Review and Advisory Board found that friends and family, work colleagues, knew about abuse in a relationship. There are 17 out of 20 people who were bystanders, just like my, me and my family and just like you. They knew that something wasn't quite right, but they didn't do anything about it, either because they were fearful or they just didn't know what to do. They didn't take a stand and they didn't use their leadership to step in and make a change. Now, we've all heard the word bystander, as it's a word that's used in many different situations. We're all bystanders, we witness car accidents, we see children falling over in the playground, uh, we stand by as, as a house is burnt down to the ground. Bystanders are not certain types of people because we all witness things, we all see things, we all feel things. As a society, we're told to mind our own business, not to intrude in other people's affairs. But in a domestic violence situation, this can make it hard to determine what to do, especially when it involves someone's marriage. If we have the tools and skills necessary to intervene, then we can interrupt the violent situation. So my question is, what message does a bystander send when they do nothing? Is it easy being a bystander? No, it's difficult. The message that you send when you do nothing is that behaviour is acceptable. We need to trust our intuition. We need to act on overcoming our fears and even if it is uncomfortable, we need to make the perpetrator accountable for their actions. As a foundation, our Stand By Her campaign highlights that we all have a voice. It's our hope that we will prompt bystanders just like you to realise the powerful impact that words or actions can have for a victim. I encourage you to act on your intuition and to help someone in need. Speak up, step in, and you can make a difference. So as you can see on our screen, 
the women in our campaign, whose names have been changed, shared their story, their stories of hope, their stories of how bystanders were able to come forward and support them when they were in a vulnerable position. They were the lucky ones. They survived. I also want to point out, as Lydia has already said, many of the statistics that people use when referring to domestic violence focus on women as the victim and the male as the perpetrator. However, we understand that women can be violent against men too. The fact that one woman a week and one man a month are killed by their current or former partner overwhelmingly shows that women are significantly represented as the victims. Now I realise that there are a lot of good men out there and the majority of you listening here today are good men. My message to you is do your part. Call out your mates for any disrespectful or derogatory comments made towards women. Make your mates accountable for their actions because men are an important part of this conversation and I thank you for taking interest in today's speech and for playing a part toward working towards gender equality. So as Lydia mentioned, my sister Alison was murdered at the hands of her husband back in 2012. Most of you would be aware of her high profile murder case. Her story shocked and captivated a nation. It resonated with the entire community and we as a family at the time wondered why. We soon realised that it was because she was the girl next door. She was a kind and loving mother. She had, she had colleagues within the workplace. She was well educated, a high achiever and a loving and devoted mother. This is one thing that my family has learned over the past seven years, that domestic violence can happen to anyone, all classes of people, all religions, all income and education levels. Alison, like so many other women, suffered in silence until her death. It can happen to anyone because it doesn't discriminate. We as a family now look back and realise that there were signs of violence, although not always physical. And in hindsight, if we'd have known what to look out for, changes in Alison's behaviour and in her level of self-esteem, then the lives of her and those of her three children may have been very different. We have to take solace in the fact that we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. Alison's murder changed many lives forever and none of our lives will ever be the same as we live with the guilt of what we could have done, what we should have done and what we would have done if we'd have known better. So our resolve as a family and through our foundation is to teach others to recognise the signs of domestic violence because it manifests itself in so many different ways. Following Alison's tragic death, we decided that we were going to turn our anger and sadness into something positive. And through our foundation, we've partnered with the Griffith University to educate people on recognising the signs and responses of family and domestic violence and we teach practical skills on how to intervene effectively. 
The training workshop is aimed at the corporate space and we weave Alison's story throughout, explaining the power and control rule, which is on your screen at the moment. It shows what violence looks like in its many forms. And when my parents sat down with the team from Griffith University, we soon realized that Alison's story fit into every single segment of this wheel. All of those pieces of the pie were somehow entangled with Alison and her family. We're calling the program Alison's Gift because we feel that it's her gift to those women who have lost their voice. We hope to empower and educate bystanders just like you to know how to identify a domestic violence situation, what to say and what to do. So, what do you see? What do you look for? Either in the workplace or in the social setting. There are things that you might notice. Your work colleague coming in early or leaving, um, and leaving early, coming in late, staying late. That person that never perhaps has that extra cash to contribute to the uh, office morning tea or the office uh, farewell gift. Things that you might see wearing um, odd clothing for the time of year, perhaps long sleeves in summer. There are lots of things, as you can see on your screen right now, things that you might notice. So what do you say? Every situation is unique. To be an effective bystander, the first thing we need to do is to overcome our fear. So many people, including myself and my family, are fearful of stepping in, fearful of saying too much for consequences that might come back on the victim and of course her children. We need to have the courage to step in and push that little bit harder. So things like you can see on your screen, it's not my business. I'm not going to interfere. If I say too much, I'm going to lose their friendship. And of course, the ultimate one is you don't want consequences coming back on the victim. Finally, there's no textbook that will give you all the answers for what do you say. I know a lot of people would say the obvious, which is what we did in Alison's case, is everything okay? But I've put a different twist on that and I say to people, are you feeling safe? Because that's so important for them to actually think a little bit more deeply about, well, actually, are my children and I safe in this situation? And there are lots of things that you can mention to a work colleague I see that you're working long hours. Is there any way that I can help you catch up on things so that you can actually get home a little bit earlier? Uh, things like, um, I read this great book about um, this woman who um, left her, uh, her husband and started a new life. Uh, once I'm finished, I'd have to be happy for you to, to borrow it and read it. Um, just little seeds of support uh, you don't need to say 
quite confrontingly, look, um, is your partner abusing you? Just very, very subtle comments. And the most obvious is, would you like to catch up for a coffee? Perhaps, you know, um, on the holidays or on the weekend or whenever it's convenient for you. You just need to show that person that you have support for them. They know that even though they might not take up your offer right then and there, in six months, 12 months, they might make the decision, wow, I do need to change, I do need for something to happen, and they then will be able to call on you for your support. Your support needs to be not just short-term, but long-term. So who do you reach out to for help if you suspect that something's just not right? Well, of course, there's always your employee, your EAP or your employee assistance program within your organisation. And there are some wonderful agencies out there that are doing amazing work. Many professionals who will guide you and support you. I think that a lot of people have the misconception that if they call any of these agencies that uh, sirens are going to arrive and, and red flag, the, the red, uh, red and blue lights are going to be flashing, they arrive at the house and the police are going to swoop in and there's just going to be chaos. That's not actually the case. Um, obviously, if there's a life-threatening situation, then triple O is the place to call. But um, these agencies are really there to support and guide you. And, and, you know, this could be weeks and months in, in the making before anything actually happens, before you actually, um, the woman actually makes the decision to leave. So it's not just you that they can support, it's any family member or the victim themselves. So when we talk about when we talk about family and domestic violence, I think that we really need to think about the fact that all violence is gendered violence. And the seed of the problem is gender equality. It lies in the unequal structures that prevent women and girls from enjoying the same opportunities and privileges as men and boys. As a society, and I know as a, an early childhood teacher, we prepare our children very early in life to enter the world where men are leaders and women are the followers. So when women are considered inferior or lesser and unworthy of respect, you can see how people can justify victimization and these other forms of behavior. We can address gender equality by actively challenging it in the places where we live, where we learn, and of course, where we work and play. When we use phrases like, it's just boys being boys, or don't run like a girl, don't cry like a girl, that immediately sends a message to a young boy that he is superior to the girl, and the female is weak. This becomes instilled in them very early and has, in all of us, been a way that we have used an excuse for females to be considered less than a male. So we need to change our mindsets and the way that we think about that. We need to think and change the fact that 
people feel that they can control others. You will notice um, in that power and control wheel, uh, there are a lot of non-physical signs of family and domestic violence. So coercive control, that underlying patterned behaviour that women experience, is something that was very significant in my sister's case. There were no signs of physical violence. And so it was very difficult for the police to understand just what Alison had been going through. But of course, through her journal, which was found in the house and ultimately used as evidence in the trial, we found lots and lots of evidence of coercive control. So it's important for you to understand the different ways that domestic violence manifests itself, not just in physical sense. So finally, our family really wants Alison's legacy to be a positive one. We don't want her to be seen as the victim. And so by sharing her story, we hope that we can help others. I encourage each and every one of you to be educated, to be given the opportunity to share your support with those that you feel may be at risk. Become educated, be prepared to be an active bystander. Be on standby, be fully equipped, have a toolbox ready with those skills and, 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 and strategies ready to step in. You could not only change someone's life, but you could also save a life if you have the knowledge and the power to do so. Thank you so much for listening this morning. And I do hope that um, what I've shared with you um, has resonated and, um, and hopefully we can, together, we can make a change. Thank you, Vanessa, such a powerful story. Um, the story of your family, your personal experiences uh, and the foundation. So can I firstly say uh, your strength and resilience uh, for yourself and the family for turning what has been such a tragic uh, experience and event for you and your family into something as uh, fundamentally important as the foundation uh, is remarkable. So mm -hmm. thank you. Um, in Queensland, we're up to our fourth year of the reform program uh, from the Queensland, Queensland Government's Not Now, Not Ever report. Um, I read that uh, in the 12 months to June 2019, there were over 84,000 calls uh, to support services, uh, a reduction by only 1% on the previous mm -hmm. year, uh, and a 21% increase in referrals to support agencies. I guess my question to you firstly <clears throat> is twofold. One is, do you think governments are doing enough? And secondly, what do you think would be the key piece of reform that would help the most at the moment? Well, and I think since your statistic uh, refers to 2019, we've had the COVID-19 um, epidemic and of course the lockdown. And so I can't imagine the statistics that are going to be revealed you know, at the end of this year or mid next year as to um, what the, those terrifying um, numbers will be. Um, because as we all know that during the lockdown there was 
there has been a significant spike in not only incidents of, uh, of recorded of uh, family and domestic violence, but also um, of uh, Google searches, uh, you know, of for women and men, both women and men, um, looking for advice on family and domestic violence situations and how they can actually escape from such such a circumstance. But uh, as far as the government is concerned, um, I think that each time a woman, you know, appears in the news that has died, such as you know Alison and, and Hannah Clark and so many others, Tara Brown. You know, um, there's there's a, a fluctuation in I think the government's response. Behind the scenes, there is a lot going on. Uh, you know, with the um, not now, not ever report. There's the, the phases that are being rolling out, and because uh, we're we're into the third phase of that being rolled out, and um, the prevention panel that's been put together by the government is is also working very hard behind the scenes. But I think that the key piece of legislation that we need to look for now is actually criminalising coercive control um, because there's approximately 90% of incidents that, uh, like Alison, where um, coercive control was the main contributor to domestic violence abuse. So as I said, there was no uh, physical signs in Alison's case. It was all the coercive control. So, uh, you know, it's always the woman's fault that um, the abuse is occurring, the financial abuse, the emotional abuse, um, using children uh, against the I'm going to leave or I'm going to kill myself if you leave me. Uh, you know, I'll leave and take the children. So all of those comments and all of that control, that, and, uh, there's always a history of that pattern behaviour. I think that the government really needs to stop and look at criminalising coercive control. Because at the moment, QPS and corrective services have uh, really only act on evidence. Uh, when, when you put coercive control in front of them, where's the evidence? Mm. Where's the evidence of coercive control? I can see a black eye, I can see bruises, but I can't see the emotional toll and everything that's gone on behind the scenes. So I really think that our next step is is uh, criminalising coercive control. That's not going to be the be all and end all and the answer to everything. Uh, you know, Scotland's done it, the UK's done it, um, I think Tasmania's looking at it or close to it, but. Um, I think that's, that's our next step for the government. What, what can we do in the property industry to hold ourselves accountable? Well, as you said in your introduction, you know, the property industry is male-dominated. Um, so I think in, in a sector such as this, it's really important that uh, men are made accountable for their actions. Like I said, I guess mates need to step up and, and uh, make their mates accountable and, and call them out. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's on a work site or in the office or, you know, at the pub uh, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I guess as an organisation, giving all employees the tools that they need to be able to overcome their fear mm -hmm. and have the courage to actually do that. Um, yeah, step up and, and and use their voice to make change. 
I'll, I'll bring you in here too, Nick. Um, I know you've long been a relentless advocate for uh, gender equality. We've sat at many events and on many panels together. Can you share uh, with us what JLL as a company are doing to help women that may be in a vulnerable position? Sure. Um, so, look, I think that first and foremost, uh, our culture needs to be one where people feel supported and know that they can talk to someone. Um, whether it be a colleague, a manager, or their local HR. Um, for those who listened to Stephen's webinar earlier in the week, he, he touched on this, we need to look out for each other and, and reach out when something's up. Um, you know, this could be um, calling people out for bad behaviour. It could be reaching out to someone if you think they're in trouble. We need leaders who notice when something's up with one of their team members. Mm -hmm. And we need people to notice when their colleagues seem withdrawn or their behaviour changes. Um, or have those people comfortable in reaching out as well and saying, I need help. And I think while this is everyone's responsibility, as Vanessa has said, it's our responsibility to ensure that this culture is developed and nurtured. Um, and this is the cornerstone of the importance of diversity and inclusion, that everyone brings them, their whole selves to work. They feel that they, you know, they don't feel they have to hide things. And in having that openness, then that's when we'll start to you know, maybe detect that there are some issues that we might be able to help with. Uh, I think initiatives like this webinar are incredibly important because it normalises and elevates awareness of these issues. Um, you know, I'd like to go further and ensure that the people who couldn't make it today, you know, are watching um, the session at a later date. Um, also, we've got the practical support in our um, domestic and family violence policy to ensure that we have leaders and a HR team who are you know, educated in supporting, um, in supporting our people in this um, practical execution where it's required. Mm. Um, have we got the policy up on the yep. screen? So the policy, just, it outlines um, who employees can go to for assistance, um, what the role of the manager and the HR team in working together to provide support. It details some of the practical support examples, such as flexible work arrangements, um, the use of leave and um, the employee assistance program. And finally, it does provide other useful contacts that Vanessa was talking about for there are a lot of resources available. Um, you know, we're not the experts in this area. So mm -hmm. it, it directs people to those organisations that can provide counselling, financial assistance um, and other support to people who are in this situation. Mm -hmm. but what active steps can we take um, in, in the workplace if we suspect that there is someone that we're working with uh, who is in a, a vulnerable position, uh, you know, and we suspect domestic and, and family violence? So I think this is a really complex question to answer in such a short time frame and, you know, I'm definitely not an authority on the subject. Uh, Vanessa spoke about a number of ways that situations can be approached and yeah, the first thing I would do is encourage people in this situation who suspect that someone is in trouble to look to a site like the Alison Baden Clay website or sites of other organisations that support victims of domestic violence like White Ribbon, um, Lifeline, 1-800-RESPECT. Um, all of these provide really great guidance and specific conversation starters and things that, you know, you need to pick something that's appropriate for you. I think some of the important things to remember, and, you know, Vanessa touched on these, is, you know, the first discussion, is, it's not going to be an easy discussion. Mm -hmm. So we really need to prepare ourselves for that. Um, you know, the victim might be afraid to talk initially for many reasons, and that's why it's just planting that seed, and then they know that they can come to you for support if required. 
you know, always letting them know that it's not their fault, that, um, you know, there are organisations and services that can help. Uh, if you think it's important that they seek professional assistance, maybe look those up for them. Um, and, but then, on the other hand, you also have to respect and not judge them for the decisions that they make. Um, you need to support them in the decisions, even if you don't agree with them. And I'd also want to point out it's really important to protect yourself. As Vanessa mm. brought up before, the analogy is it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. This is not a conversation you're going to have and then go away, oh, okay, well, I can have a coffee now, I'll fix it. This is, you know, this is, this is a long-term thing and it's, it's really tough to support people and it's important that you also protect your own emotional wellbeing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, before you think you need it, call the Employee Assistance Program and say, this is what I'm doing. You'd be surprised at what just having another person to talk to, the support that that, you know, that will really help you provide that support mm -hmm. um, on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we asked for questions when people were registering, registering for the, uh, uh, the webinar. One question that came in was the Fair Work Ombudsman states that employees are entitled to five unpaid leave days annual on top of annual leave for domestic violence and other sensitive situations. Yep. Uh, there were two parts to this question. The first was, do you think enough companies are aware of this entitlement and are making staff aware of it and actively implementing this in the workplace? Um, so I've definitely seen a growth in awareness and appreciation of the importance of supporting victims of domestic violence in recent times and, you know, in the last 12 months since I've been in this role and an increased focus on ensuring that staff are, support, are aware of the support available. In terms of practical implementation, I can only speak for JLL, but I think we've taken the opportunity this year to, to promote our domestic and families violence policy in recent times. Um, our HR team are, of course, also well aware of the policy and, you know, have worked with managers in implementing it practically in, in a number of cases already. In terms of um, the paid leave, um, I know that the question comes up about, it, you know, is it, is it enough? And again, I, I just think the situation is vastly more complicated than saying that additional leave is going to help the problem mm. because it's not as simple as saying have extra time off and that's going to fix things. Every person's situation is very unique and it's really important to acknowledge that. But I also know that we would and have um, supported employees in domestic violence situa situations as best we can. So it, it is just a matter of us working with mm. the employee and the manager to find the solution that works for them. And that has been in the past things like, um, you know, flexible working. Um, we've been able to um, provide that they work from a different location, um, work different hours, um, leave has been implemented, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm. Um, you just have to work with each situation as it arises. Yeah. Um, Vanessa, we, we talked earlier about 2020 um, being a year like no other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the statement of the year. Yes. Um, and, and that we've all spent our extended periods of time at home. Um, for many, it's a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. uh, and for others, the pandemic has meant that families have no escape from potentially volatile situations at home. For you, has the pandemic unearthed any learning uh, for the foundation, either um, in how to assist women who can't leave uh, their primary residence, um, or for the foundation and how to recognise um, previously unknown telltale signs of domestic violence? Uh, difficult question to answer. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of um, 
incidents where, uh, you know, during the lockdown, the perpetrators were, you know, telling family and friends, oh, no, she's got COVID, so don't come near us. Um, you know, she's got COVID and, you know, if you come near us, you'll get it, so stay away. And um, there were, there's, um, the, the telltale signs for us really were um, things like that, that, you know, the, the coercive control behind the scenes. There was, enough, there was nothing new that we didn't know was going on um, as far as the red flags. Uh, I think that we just came to the realisation that um, perpetrators uh, drew strength from the fact that they were uh, in lockdown and they had the family and that and the partner right where they wanted them and they knew that their power had increased because they couldn't go anywhere. Um, as far as, um, you know, assisting the women, um, the, the agencies that, that support the women have been run off their feet at, at, with um, calls for help. Mm. Um, you know, we've had women you know, with their phones, you know, in the toilet trying to make a phone call because that's the only place that they are alone. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, of course, there's also the added um, aspect of uh, increased levels of alcohol consumption and drugs during this time. So um, it's just been the, the, the level of, uh, the level of awareness um, for us has gone from here to, you know, skyrocketed. Mm. Um, so hopefully now that life is getting back more back to normal, um, you know, the women will be able to breathe a little bit easier and still be able to contact us, you know, when it, when they need the mm. support. But um, yeah, just no new learnings. It's just everything was increased tenfold. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 2020 has impacted businesses. Uh, we all know that firsthand. What has the impact been on the foundation? Because I imagine that your normal um, fundraising activities and that sort of thing have all been affected. Yes. And then I guess what, what can we do to help with that? Uh, well, yes, um, all, a lot of our fundraising for 2020 um, has, was postponed and, and, and hopefully will go ahead in, in 2021. Uh, the way that we um, gain funds for the foundation, because we're um, a not-for-profit, we're a community organisation, uh, we're all volunteers. So um, we have our major fundraiser in July with our Strive to Be Kind Day, which is the last Friday uh, of July. And uh, we, we actually have um, incorporated the entire month of July because we have a campaign that runs through the month of July. But it culminates in our large um, event, which next year is hopefully going to be held at Howard Smith Orbs. So that's our major fundraiser, and we have our Strive to Be Kind Day lunch. And Strive to Be Kind Day is a day where we encourage the community and businesses and schools to, to come together and uh, buy yellow ribbon. Uh, a lot of schools have uh, free dress days where they can wear yellow. Uh, a lot of businesses get involved. Um, having you know a, a morning tea or just a, it's a time to to pay it forward, mm. share random acts of kindness to each other, and just go that extra step because I think that if more people were 
kind and respectful of one another, then you know, we'd have less violence in the world. And and Alison was an extremely kind and generous person. So we want the world to know that uh, we want to share kindness. We want to share Alison's generosity with the world. So uh, we do that on the last Friday in July. And we also have um, our Alison's gift training, which we are rolling out, um, have rolled out into the corporate space. And um, companies can sign up to, to have presentations done to, to their employees. And just, it, it, what I've done today is just a, a short overview of some of the things that you will learn in the training. But um, the training goes for uh, about three, four hours. And so you get a lot more in-depth detail as to to how you can help and support as a bystander. So that's another way that we can, we, you can support the foundation. Um, but uh, obviously just you know, donating as well is, is another way that you can. But uh, that's the work that we're doing at the moment. And of course, uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, it's really important to, to talk to, to children at a young age about gender equality and being respectful. And so our foundation is currently working on developing resources and programs that's got, that are going to go into schools, both primary and high school, so that we can, uh, you know, talk to the talk to the teenagers who are just about to start their first relationship, and you know, just be aware. This is what you, you know. You can recognise any of these signs, then you know, take a second look. But uh, and also, of course, you know, the younger age group, then you know, they need to start early. You know about you know what happens in the playground, and you know pink doesn't necessarily mean girl, and blue doesn't necessarily mean boy. Mm. You know we need to start early. That was one of the questions that has um, oh. come through on the chat box about okay. uh, taking the program into school. So that, yeah. that's fantastic. I'm going to there's some um, a lot of questions coming through, but I'm going to selfishly ask ask you one first. Um, how do you protect yourself? So you're dealing with all of these. Um, stories and um, people that are suffering, um, it's obviously very raw for you. Mm. How do you almost compartmentalise that so that um, you protect yourself? Uh, for me, um, I have a few key support people around me. Um, Sean from Griffith University, um, she and I are very um, connected, so, you know, she, she teaches me, I teach her, and we sort of, um, you know, Vent and talk to each other quite a bit. So um, there's a few key people. My uh, the, found, the foundation board. There's key people on there that you know I talk to. But um, uh, you know, I guess um, we. My family has always said we were a very private family, and so we don't discuss a lot of things that go on within our family. Um, we've been very careful to maintain the privacy of Alison's three children. We've never. Put them in the limelight. We've um, we've always made sure that they've had as normal uh, and uh, a life as possible, and are treated as every other teenager, you know, growing up, but giving them every opportunity that they can. So um, we we basically just turn to one another, and I, as a uh, personally, have certain key people that that I reach out to. Mm. So I'm always, you know, we're always asking each other, yeah. You know, are you okay? Mm. So, yeah, are you dealing with that okay? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, things things uh, very much slowed down. So, um, I've just been dealing with with normal life and just doing a lot of things online, and you know, the work of the foundation behind the scenes. Mm. So, yeah, 
I'll get into some of these questions. Oh, sure. Um, one question that's come through is, how has the attitude of police on the subject of domestic violence changed over the years to victims and to perpetrators? Certainly since Alison's um, death, we have seen uh, training programs and workshops. There's been a lot of things that have gone on within the public service, particularly with the QPS, lots of training that's been introduced and awareness about it. I can tell you one thing, that my family went through a six-week trial and domestic violence was not mentioned once. The police, the corrective services, the judicial system, family law um, courts, none of them mentioned domestic violence. Um, the prosecutors were only talking about murder because there was an affair, there was uh, insurance money, there was, you know, his financial situation. Um, all of the evidence pointed to a jealous, you know, lover and who wanted his wife out of the way so that he could get the insurance money. Um, but after we sat down with professionals and, they, and we looked at that power and control wheel, it was very, very evident that domestic violence and coercive control had been uh, present for a very long time. So I think that since that time, there has been a lot of movement within the QPS and, um, and the corrective services um, towards education. Um, I still think there's a long way to go because there's still a lot of police out there um, that have the mindset that well, it was your fault and I don't believe you. Um, I think that it's really important that, the, that we have to um, tell women and show them that we do believe them and we don't judge them. Mm -hmm. And that is still a very much um, something that needs to be progressed within um, our system mm -hmm. across the board. You talked earlier about um, Hannah Clark, yeah. um, how, when, you know, one woman a week, one man a month, mm -hmm. how do you stay energised? You know, how does that not get too much or insurmountable? Well, you know, certainly when I heard about Hannah Clark, I, um, it was certainly a tragic circumstance, but I was uh, relieved in a way that, because I thought of my sister and I thought, well, we could have lost Alison and the three girls. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Hannah had lost her, lost her three children, and I thought, as a family, we could have lost Alison and mm -hmm. the three children. Luckily, we still have our three children, the Alison's three children that we are caring for, and you know, we're blessed to have them. Um, but I suppose my energy comes from the fact that uh, I can help others, mm -hmm. um, and of course. That was the whole point behind my family and I creating the foundation was that we knew that we wanted to help others and we wanted Alison's legacy to be a positive one, not for her to be known as the victim and for him to be the hero in all of this because everybody knew his name. We wanted everybody to remember her because um, initially, um, you know, I wasn't and still not um, I don't agree with the fact that Alison was a victim. I think that Alison was a very determined woman and Hannah Clark was a very determined woman. They were determined to um, save their marriages. They wanted their marriages to work. They were determined that they were going to keep their children safe. Mm. They were determined that they were going to come out at the other end. Um, in Alison's case and in Hannah's case, 
um, that wasn't what happened in the end. But I believe that if I can make a difference and if somebody listening today can change somebody's life and, and know now what I didn't know back then, um, then that's what energizes me and that's what keeps me going because I want others to know that information is power and you can change someone's life and in fact save their life mm. if you have the knowledge to do so. Mm. I want to thank you for taking the time to share your morning with us, your thank story you. with us, uh, the story of your family and the foundation. Um, I want to thank you uh, for being courageous to advocate for women that can't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, Nicole, thank you as always for your leadership on this issue and, and uh, leading the way on gender equity for our business um, as a whole and our industry. Uh, as we've heard, family and domestic violence simply cannot be ignored. This is not a comfortable topic, it's not a palatable, it is not palatable content, but conversations need to happen. The harm of women and children needs to stop and as a community, it is up to us to join in standing against it. So as we leave today and go on with our day, I urge you all please to take the time to check in on your friends and your colleagues. Look out for the signs, seek help if you or someone you know is in a vulnerable position. Thank you very much for your time and have a great day.